Ever wonder how teachers' unions gain such a prominent role in American politics? Are you curious about how state and local policies shape the politics of education? Want to know what you can do at the local level to fight back against the liberal policies pushed by the teachers' unions? Welcome to the Conservative Classroom, where we're teaching the truth and preserving our values. I'm your host, Mr. Webb, and I'm glad you're here. This podcast is a haven for conservative teachers and patriots like you who believe in the importance of free speech, traditional values, and education without indoctrination. Each week, we dive into the issues that are plaguing our education system and keeping you up at night. In each episode, we offer common sense ideas to improve education in our classrooms and communities. You may feel like you're the last conservative educator or parent, but I want you to know that you are not alone. By the way, if you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with a like-minded patriot. Together, we can teach the truth and preserve our values. In today's episode, we'll answer these questions and more in our conversation with a Hoover Fellow, professor, and author, Michael Hartney. Now let's get started. Today I'm excited to welcome a special guest to the conservative classroom, Michael Hartney. Michael is a Hoover Fellow at the Hoover Institution, assistant professor of political science at Boston College, and author of How Policies Make Interest Groups, Governments, Unions, and American Education. Michael's here to discuss his book, which examines the rise and influence of teachers' unions in American politics. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joey. It's good to be with you. And it was great to meet you at the Teacher Freedom Summit several weeks ago. Appreciate you absolutely being there and supporting the cause. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and what led you to the Hoover Institution? Sure. So um, after I graduated from college, I worked in Washington for a few years for the National Governors Association, primarily uh, on projects that were around reforming American high schools. Um, but I also did a good bit of work on rethinking teacher pay and accountability measures, which were a big topic in the 2010s. And then I decided to go to graduate school and get a PhD in political science. But unlike most of my uh, peers, I was really not so interested in Congress or the presidency or sort of the traditional topics that most political scientists tend to study. I was really interested in the political dynamics of American education. I sort of fell into this because, as it turned out, most of the folks who have expertise in education that come out of schools of education don't really study politics the way that political scientists do. And then, unfortunately, most political scientists who have the tools to understand political organizations and power and how it influences policy don't tend to give a lot of attention to schools. So that led me into writing a dissertation around the time that teachers unions were really on the the nation's uh, radar. This was about the time that Scott Walker in Wisconsin challenged teachers unions there and Chris Christie in New Jersey. And so I wrote my dissertation on the topic of what gave rise to teacher union power in American politics. And 
Uh, since then, I've been working as a professor and also as a, as a fellow at, at various think tanks trying to wrap my head around the way in which uh, politics shapes our, our education system and, and how we might organize uh, school governance in a way that uh, elevates a focus on student outcomes and student achievement um, rather than simply elevating adult interests. Right. Let's uh, let's dive right into the heart of today's topic, which is uh, the influence of teachers unions in American politics and American policy. I was going to ask you what inspired you to write how policies make interest groups. Um, your answer to my last question may have answered that, but if not, what inspired you to write the book? Well, I think the thing is that um, teachers unions are typically not treated like an interest group the way that political scientists say would study the NRA or study the chambers of commerce or even study something like the American Medical Association. And I think part of the reason for that actually comes from not really a nefarious place, but just the fact that in general, Americans really like teachers. Um, they see teachers as underpaid, kind of uh, uh, have a soft spot for them. And so the idea that there could be an organization um, that operates just like any other interest group, that is an organization that pursues the interests of its members in a way that isn't necessarily directly related to the principal goal of schooling, which is raising academic achievement outcomes for kids, um, really sort of like lit a light bulb off in me and said, this is something worthy of studying. People aren't studying it. And, and as I said a moment ago, the timing was right. I mean, this was a time period where after really, as I say in the book, after 30 or 40 years where there was a status quo in teacher labor law and teacher unionization that came on board in the 60s and 70s, it really hadn't been touched uh, in those in those intervening decades until you had uh, various governors, uh, many of whom came up sort of during the Tea Party moment uh, of the 2010s uh, that put this issue back on the national radar. So so that was why I was inspired to write the book. Now, how are how are teachers unions different from other labor unions? Well, the first thing to understand is that they're public sector unions, or that is that they represent uh, workers who are employed by the government, state or local governments. And the most important thing for people to understand about what makes that different is that unlike in the private sector, where there's an, a market-based discipline uh, imposed on unions, and that is basically the fact that if unions ask for too much at the bargaining table, or they're unreasonable in their demands with their employer. You can think of, say, the United Auto Workers and the auto industry. The union in that context has to worry that their jobs may simply be shipped overseas, that the for-profit firm will have to close up shop because they can't make a big enough profit, and all of those union members will lose their jobs. So that dynamic, which exists in the private sector, doesn't exist in the public sector because governments don't really go out of business. They can simply decide to charge taxpayers more. And so right off the bat, that's kind of one of the big differentiators between teachers unions, which are part of the public sector union environment, and other unions. You might think of unions that are trying to represent workers at Starbucks or, like I said, the auto workers. And the other big difference is that when it comes to bargaining 
um, an, an agreement between a union uh, and an employer. Uh, in the public setting, the unions are very organized politically, and they play a large role in determining who they'll negotiate with. So a few years ago, the Michigan Education Association, which is an affiliate of the National Education Association, the largest teachers union in the United States, passed out a flyer encouraging their members to get involved in school board electioneering. And the flyer was entitled, Elect Your Own Employer. It's as easy as one, two, three. And so if we contrast that, say, to the private school sector, or sorry, the private sector, not the private school sector, it simply isn't the case that auto workers get to use politics, use democratic politics to decide who they'll sit across from at the bargaining table. So I think those are the two things that make teachers unions very different than unions in other private sector industries. Well, that's uh, that's interesting. And I've already learned something in this episode. I guess I knew those facts. I just hadn't uh, hadn't pieced them together like you described. So I appreciate that. What? How did the unions? How did they become so powerful to influence educational policy and influence state and local governments? Well, that the answer to that question really is what I see as the big contribution of the book. And that is that it's not contrary to sort of a lot of the historical accounts that you'll get of the labor movement that describes the rise of unions, public sector unions in the 1960s and 1970s as a bottom up affair, sort of um, coming from the workers uh, all the way up to the top of the union organization. Instead, what I show is that teachers unions were able to rise to power because governments, in this case, state governments, decided to enact what are called mandatory public sector collective bargaining laws. That's a very long, jargony term. But all it really means, in short, is that states passed laws that said if a majority of teachers in a given school district notify their school board or the school district, that they want to bargain collectively over their pay, working conditions, and education policy, that the school board has a legal obligation to sit down with the union and only the union. And that's one of the big pieces here. There's no legal obligation for the school district to sit down with parent groups or school reform groups or religious groups or civil rights groups. They only have to sit down with the teachers union and craft out an agreement. Uh, about what those things will look like. Now, it doesn't mean teachers get everything they want. We all know that in many cases, teachers are underpaid. And and I don't mean to imply that teachers unions are all powerful. And we could talk a little bit about where they're especially powerful and maybe where they're less powerful. But the bottom line is that when states did this, starting with Wisconsin in 1959, and the last one of these laws was New Mexico in 1992, you had about 34 states over those three decades, adopt these labor laws. What it really did was it put teachers unions in the driver's seat of shaping education policy across states and districts, because all of the other actors that might want to influence education were not given a similar privilege. Is that why um, you argue that teachers unions are more than mere labor organizations? Uh, Can you elaborate on that? 
Sure. So um, one of the things that a lot of folks don't really recognize is they they tend to think about um, political power um, as being really about who has power in Washington, D.C. And so when you think about who are the most powerful interest groups out there, you're going to think of groups you know, that show up at the D.C. cocktail parties that make super large campaign contributions to federal candidates for office. Um, and it's not to say that the teachers unions don't play in federal politics, but where the teacher unions are particularly active and influential is in state and especially local politics. And the reason that matters so much is that most people, most average, ordinary American voters they may turn out and participate in national elections when the presidency or members of Congress are on the ballot. But in state and local elections, voter turnout is very low. Uh, in fact, in many in many school districts, it's quite hard to find people who are willing to run for the school board. The positions don't pay a lot. Uh, you know, school board members get complained to constantly. But because the teachers unions were able to organize so effectively in the aftermath of these collective bargaining laws that I was talking about, not only are they the strongest group, you know, in state and local politics, but the competition is so small that really it's sort of like one of those stories. All they have to do is show up half the time to win. So in my own research, for example, I show that teachers unions win about 70 percent of all competitive school board elections when they make an endorsement. And that's a really big number when wow. you think about the fact. Yeah. You know, I mean, like any other interest group would be delighted to win 50 or 60 percent of the time. The fact that unions win seven out of 10 times really tells you something. And also, in some sense, I think um, depresses uh, candidates who might be interested in challenging the teachers unions from deciding to run. They say, what's the point? You know, I can't get the same sort of support if the unions backing a candidate. If the unions had teachers and students' best interests at heart, that would be great news. But I think the right. problem is that they say they do, but then all of their policies are pushing things that, quite frankly, a lot of teachers and a lot of parents don't want in their school system. Do you think the teachers' unions have maybe pushed it so far that now teachers are are – withdrawing their money from the teachers unions saying, you know, I've had enough or I don't know, maybe we're not to that point yet. Maybe I just see it more, but you've done some research. What, what do you see there? I think there are a lot of things going on right now. Um, let me start by saying that I, I don't think it is the case. Certainly not historically. I, I think the moment that we're in, in the last few years, this may be um, truer. We could talk about that. But in general terms, I don't think that everything that teachers unions have lobbied for, you know, say since 1960, are policies that are not necessarily overtly harmful to kids. I think that there's some things that unions have lobbied for in certain circumstances that aren't necessarily that, that may, in fact, help students. So the example I would give there are, you know, state leaders who want to give maybe a big tax cut and don't want to spend sufficient money on education. I'm not saying everywhere. There's certainly places that have plenty of money, but there are also places that over the years have not had the resources they need. And, and teachers unions have over the years lobbied for those resources. But that being said, the mistake that gets made is that the media and the teachers unions, they want to claim that every time they lobby for something, it's always in the best interest of kids, that there's never a conflict between what is good for 
education professionals in their job as educators and what students need. And we can think of lots of examples, but I think the one that might be most salient for listeners right now is thinking uh, back to the COVID-19 pandemic and the decision in many parts of this country at the behest of teachers unions to keep schools shut down from in-person learning for upwards of a year, even after, in many cases, union uh, unionized teachers were put at the front of the line for their COVID vaccines, and we were a year into the pandemic. And for the teachers unions, this worked out well because they were able to lobby the government uh, to get extra education funding. Uh, in a sense, uh, my friend Corey DeAngelis puts it this way. He says the unions essentially uh, held the education system in many places hostage for billion-dollar ransom payments from the government. And that gives you just one example of how it's not always the case that, um, as Randy Weingarten likes to say, what's good for teachers is good for students, but that's just obviously not true. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I, let me give an example for my own self. I'm a professor at Boston College for my day job, and sure, I'd like to ask my dean uh, to teach, you know, one class instead of four. That would be good for me. I could do more research. I could take on other uh, other things I want to do, but it's probably not in the best interest of the students in my uh, university uh, who benefit from me being there and teaching a full course load. So it's just obvious that it's not always the case that that what's good for teachers is is what's good for students. And I think that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind. Now, you also asked about are, are teachers waking up to this and sort of like what's going on in this political moment. I think something really important and really interesting, but that I don't yet have a, a full understanding of because it's it's kind of a new phenomenon, is the fact that the teachers unions, when they came into existence, really focused on the bread and butter occupational material interests of teachers. So things like raising pay, ensuring good benefits or a pension or uh, good working conditions, all things that really focused on what was going on inside of the school building. But as you well know, and as came up at the, at the recent Freedom Foundation conference, today teachers unions are simply allying themselves with the political left as just another uh, massive interest group in the constellation of progressive interest groups. So, for example, the unions are taking positions on LGBTQ issues in the United States uh, as it pertains to, you know, what books are appropriate for instruction and what books aren't. They're taking positions over the years. They've taken positions on foreign policy. Um, they've taken positions on affirmative action. They've taken positions on abortion. And, then, you know, the list goes on. And so I think for a lot of teachers, they don't understand. They say, look, you know, it's one thing for you to rigorously try and represent my interests and get me a better deal at the bargaining table. But why is it the case when a third of your members are Republicans are 95 cents out of every dollar that you contribute going to the Democratic Party? So I think, well, the unions have been in the Democratic camp for a while, the degree to which they're adopting sort of radical progressive uh, agenda items across the board has escalated in the last few years. And I think just to be to be very fair and objective about it as, as a scholar, I think that's actually something that's true in American politics across the board. So like if we looked at an organization like the NRA right, the National Rifle Association, it used to be the case 10, 15, 20 years ago that the NRA would endorse lot, uh, a good number of Democrats who were really, really strong on the gun issue 
Um, and over the years, you can sort of see that the NRA in many ways has started to talk about and align itself with just more general conservative positions. And so I think this is an interesting moment in American politics where we're really moving away from kind of single issue interest groups and we're moving to just sort of like right leaning interest groups and left leaning interest groups. And the teachers unions are clearly in those left leaning interest groups. Right. It, it, one of the issues that I always think of with the teachers unions is their pro-abortion stance and you think, okay, so you are for children, but you are for pro, you know, you are pro-abortion. And then you ask yourself, why does a teacher's union even have a position on that? And you mentioned several other things that why do they even have a position on that? And I don't know the answer to that, but I wonder if, and you mentioned COVID a couple of minutes ago, I wonder if COVID and kids being at home, I wonder if that highlighted some of the influence that the teachers unions had to the teachers and to some parents. I think that's right. I mean, I'm certainly aware of teachers who didn't like teaching remotely. I mean, I would count myself as one of those. Um, and obviously parents, um, were given sort of a front row seat to seeing not only, you know, what are my kids learning in terms of the rigor, but also how is time spent? You know, is time, uh, is time well accounted for? Are they actually using the time well? And in a lot of cases, I think, you know, if you look at the survey data, um, uh, parents said things were coming up short. Now it is true as well that parents and other folks said that, they remained largely satisfied, satisfied with their, their children's schools. Um, but I think some of that has to do with the fact that, again, this is what makes, I think, the teachers union so formidable is that their teachers are really respected, uh, in society by parents and teach and parents appreciate the fact that teachers are willing to take on a career where they're guiding their, their children. And I think that that means that to the extent that oftentimes parents and and other folks don't recognize that the teachers union as an organization is very different from individual teachers and necessarily like all of their preferences, that it makes it so that the teachers union sometimes can avoid criticism that would otherwise come their way if folks uh, were more aware that those are different things. Um, and I think COVID in some ways made those lines less blurry for folks. And, and I, let me give you an example from my own, um, I wouldn't call it my hometown, but where I, where I currently live. Um, and that's, uh, in, in the very, um, liberal blue town of, uh, Brook, Brookline, Massachusetts. What's interesting about Brookline is of course, in the fall of 2020, because it's such a democratic community that's very anti Donald Trump, uh, Brookline did not reopen its schools in the fall. And that was pretty predictable. Mm -hmm. But by February of 2021, when teachers had been moved to the front of the vaccine lines, even in Brookline, those very liberal but wealthy uh, parents started to get angry. And the teachers union announced they were going to go on strike. And even in that community, parents were sort of apoplectic about the whole thing. And they said, hey, this is too far. So the point is that, yes, the unions can eventually push too far in a way that boomerangs on them. And I think we did see some of that in COVID. The next big thing that... Um, that listeners will want to pay attention to in this context, I, I surmise, is that after all of the federal money 
after all the money that the federal government ponied up to send to states and school districts to try and help them, quote unquote, reopen the schools. Now, all this money is not going to be spent on school reopening. The schools are reopening and they have all the money. They didn't really use it for that in most cases. Um, that's led school districts to go on a bit of a spending binge. And for those districts that use that money, remember, it's temporary money. It's not money that the federal government is going to continue to give to school districts year in and year out. But what happened in a lot of districts is they spent that money hiring new staff, unionized teaching staff and unionized administrative or not administrative, but unionized uh, ancillary staff, not teaching staff. And the problem is going to be in a year or two when that money is gone. The districts are going to to accurately cry poor and they're going to say, we don't have money. We're going to have to cut positions or we're not going to be able to give you a big raise. And I think we're going to see unions all over this country go on strike and say, hey, you're, you're cutting my especially if inflation stays above two percent. And the unions are going to argue you're cutting education funding. But the truth is going to be that. Uh, no, districts were not disciplined about their spending because unions pressured them to ratchet it up when the times were good. Right. They would be more or less going, not cutting spending, but going back to pre-COVID spending, basically. Precisely. Precisely. So are there any uh, misconceptions about teachers unions that people have that we haven't talked about that you feel like need to be fleshed out? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things is that um, just like any other organization, um, it's, it's, it happens to be the case that not all teachers are deeply active in their teachers union, even if they are sort of a nominal member. And I think this really matters because it means that the unions themselves oftentimes aren't representative of what the, the average teacher in the district might want. So I'll give an example, and that would be, say, on the issue of teacher pay. Um, we know, for example, that in New York City, uh, at least as of a couple of years ago, the um, the typical voter in a union election in education was actually a retired teacher. And you can imagine that if the average voter, sort of much like American politics, where senior citizens are much more likely to vote than sort of like under 40, what that does is it influences the agenda for the politicians who are going to cater to the interests of those who participate. So in the case of teachers unions, it's no accident that unions typically lobby most aggressively for teacher pay at the top of the salary schedule and pension and retirement benefits. But they oftentimes give short shrift to starting teacher salaries, which are a much more important issue for those recent college graduates that we want to go into teaching. And so I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot of the times, that there are divisions um, uh, within the teaching force that, you know, they want that teachers want different things and that the union, because it's not representative of all of the teachers, doesn't necessarily line up and support everything. Uh, or, or all of the different sort of voices that um, there are in education. Now, you mentioned something earlier that I had to make a note of because I thought I want to I want to circle back around to this because this is very interesting. Uh, where are unions more powerful, and where are they less powerful? Right. This is really key. So. Um, uh, when she was running for the presidency and obviously eventually didn't win and then was tapped by Joe Biden to be vice president. 
uh, Kamala Harris called on the federal government to dramatically raise teacher salaries. And it would have required either new taxes or or going to the common pool of federal resources to come up with the money. Well, she didn't become president, but she obviously uh, got a pretty influential position in the administration. And that proposal, not surprisingly, went nowhere. And so oftentimes people who say to me, look, Michael, you say teachers unions are so powerful. Well, if that's the case, how come, you know, every teacher in the United States isn't making $250,000 a year salary? And so my response would be that, yes, you're correct that if you define power and influence only as when an interest group can get everything that it wants, particularly things that are expensive, um, then no, the teachers unions aren't uh, the most powerful interest group in American politics. However, where teachers unions are powerful and influential is in being able to block or prevent various education reform proposals that they don't want to see enacted, especially, as I was saying earlier, at the state and local level, because the political competition they face is so small. And so for all of its virtues, uh, our American political system that has federalism and localism, which is a fancy sort of political science way of saying there are a lot of hoops that you have to jump through in order to get a reform proposal passed into law. Uh, the benefits of that, according, you know, as the founders saw it, of course, was that, you know, you don't want, you know, a political system that just enacts everything that a slim majority wants. You want to have some thoughtfulness about it. You want to cure what uh, Madison called the mischief of factions. The problem is that that means that any time there's something we really we have a problem and we really need to solve when there's an organized interest group like a teachers unions that's winning those seven out of 10 school board elections. All that interest group has to do to defeat reform is to block it at one stage in the process. So think of, you know, a typical state trying to pass a new law to reform, say, teacher evaluation or to pass a new charter school law. If the unions can convince one member of one committee who has a particular powerful role from shutting that off of the agenda, they win. Whereas the side that's trying to enact, say, a more robust charter school law, they've got to get it through committee, through two houses of a legislature, get the governor to sign it, and then get the state court to uphold it. So it's a much more daunting task. Now, that's not, that doesn't just apply to teachers unions. Of course, that's true of all interest groups. Right. But I think what, what gives them a little extra power is that the way we govern American education in particular has so many of those veto points. You know, you've got the feds, you've got the state departments of education, you've got school boards and superintendents and courts and, you know, everybody, you got a lot of cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. And so right. the unions really have an advantage in that all they have to do is get the ear of one of those cooks and they can preserve the status quo. Wow, that makes so much sense. And it doesn't cost anything for someone to uh, block something. It doesn't cost anything to say no. It costs a lot more to say yes and pass a law that I think the example you used was teacher pay, for instance. Uh, that would be a very expensive proposition, but it right. doesn't cost anything to block something. Right. And let me um, let me go back to that example of teacher pay, if I could, for just a minute, because I think... Um, the state of Washington uh, provides kind of a nice illustration of how teachers unions have figured out how to use this this sort of um, uh, 
bifurcated uh, governance system to its advantage. So in Washington state, like in many states, the teachers unions a few years ago uh, allied themselves with groups of advocates for more public education spending who said, you know, the, the system that we have in America where a lot of the money comes from local property taxes, it's not fair. Uh, it shortchanges kids who live in communities with low property tax values. And that's certainly true. Um, and so the unions uh, successfully lobbied the state of Washington to uh, issue a new school finance uh, law. This was actually a, a legal strategy. They got the state Supreme Court of Washington to say that the state had to take on more of the spending role in education and that local property taxes couldn't be used because when you use local property taxes too much, it led to these inequalities. And so what was supposed to happen for the average taxpayer in Washington is that while their state income taxes may have gone up, their local property taxes were supposed to go down. It was kind of a trade. Well, as soon as the unions won that victory, they got all upset in many of the wealthiest school districts because they could no longer go to the school board that they had helped elect and ask them to raise their salaries at the local level. So the unions then went on strike across the street and got their local school boards to give them raises, which again led to the inequality that they had brought a lawsuit over in the first place. So <laughs> it just goes to show you that, you know, it's great that there's like lots of, um, uh, what do we call it in political science? There's lots of venues in American politics for advocates to get involved and try to get what they want enacted, but it can oftentimes lead to this sort of um, ineffective governance, if you will. <laughs> You have received uh, press coverage, correct me if I'm wrong, from uh, outlets like The Economist, New York Times. How has your work been received by policymakers, by teachers, by the teacher unions? Um, well, I think that for the most part, uh, I try to call balls and strikes. And, you know, if I if when I you know go into my office and I run the numbers and I do my statistical analysis and I come up with a finding that is something that, you know, uh, shows something positive about teachers unions, I'm an honest person. I'm not going to bury it and not show it. And I think I've managed to develop a reputation for kind of just letting the data speak for itself. Uh, and I have to say, in some ways, I've been surprised at how. Uh, little attention uh, teachers unions have tended to give some of the findings. I've got, I'll, I think that may change in the near future. I'll sort of preview the findings of, uh, uh, of a report that I'll have coming out. I'm actually presenting this paper um, next week at, at a conference. And it's a paper where I look at, um, uh, I look at the candidates that the teachers unions endorse in school board elections. In particular, I look at the incumbents who are seeking reelection. And the premise to the paper is the following. If Randy Weingarten and the teachers unions are correct when they say that everything they do is focused on what's good for students, one would think that the decision of teachers unions about which school board members to support for reelection would be driven by how well the district students are doing academically. Do they make improvement from time one to time two? Uh, I, so some of your listeners may relate to it more this way. It's when Ronald Reagan uh, uh, famously asked in the debate with Jimmy Carter, are you better off than you than you were four years ago? And so we might ask, you know, aren't unions asking, is the school district's kids, are they better off than they were four years ago? But what I find in looking at over 2,500 school board elections in California over about a 15-year period is that the teacher unions 
are much more likely to endorse incumbents seeking reelection when the school board members provided the teachers a large salary increase in the year before the election. But there's absolutely no relationship between improved student academic performance and the union's willingness to support incumbents. So I think I'll probably catch a little flack when that comes out. Oh, but yeah, again, yeah. I'm happy to share that data. It's not like I'm, I'm hiding the data, you know, and I, and I and oftentimes find that, you know, people don't want to talk about it because it's airtight data. There's really nothing one can argue with. <laughs> That's so interesting. Do you have some other findings from your quantitative research yeah. that yeah. some key findings you'd like to share with us? Yeah. I mean, one of the one. let me just sort of also mention, I think I mentioned this at the conference that we were both at um, kind of my first foray into this whole world was I, I did get some attention from the former uh, research director of the National Education Association, who was very unhappy with an article that I published in, a, in, a, in an academic journal. And the article, in my mind, was very flattering to the NEA because it showed that in the states where the NEA contributed more money to political candidates, those states were much less likely to pass school reforms that the union opposed, things like charter schools or vouchers or, or, or what have you. And I was surprised that, that the union looked at this in an unflattering light because in my mind, it showed that they were very effective at doing what they think should be done. Um, of course, they didn't see it that way. Um, Another uh, finding I could point to, one that um, is probably a good thing to mention because it's something we could do something about, is that it turns out that the timing of school board elections matters a great deal. And what I mean by that is in some parts of this country, in some states, school board elections are held at kind of odd times of the year, maybe in the winter or in the summer of odd years. And the problem with that is there's very little else on the ballot. So the average voter doesn't tend to show up at the polls, which means it makes it easier for the teachers unions who tend to reliably bring their members out to vote to win those elections. And so what I find is that teachers unions win about seven to 10 percentage points more of the time in school board elections. Their candidate wins when the elections held at an odd time of the year. And that and that's important because states can do something about that. States can um, pass laws and some have to shift their elections to coincide with federal elections when there's going to be more balance at the polls. And you mentioned charter schools in that. Did charter schools come up in your research? Do you have any data on charter schools, specifically maybe areas where the teachers union has less of a hold? Are there more charter schools? What's the econ or not the economic, but what's the educational yes. outcome of those? areas? Well, when it comes to charter schools, my colleague here at the Uber Institution, Mackie Raymond, has done great research showing that particularly for students who are in urban areas of the country where the public school of the large, particularly large urban school districts are, are low performing, um, that charter schools are oftentimes a lifeline for kids in those areas and that particularly low income and minority students um, tend to perform much better when they're in these charter schools in those contexts. Um, this isn't from my own research, but it's from a friend and a colleague um, 
who did a very clever study looking at uh, back to school board elections, looking at what happened when a um, when a teacher, um, which was typically a teacher union endorsed type candidate, wins on the school board. And what he found is for every additional teacher candidate that wins uh, a school board seat in California, that that was associated with a decrease in the number of charter schools that the school board was willing to authorize. So there does seem to be a relationship between the union's ability to electioneer the board that it does business with and the outcomes uh, and the policies that the board's willing to pursue, like charter schools in this case. I suspected that might be the case, but, you know, a hunch is one thing. Right. Data is something else. So that's, that's awesome. Your work, your your research is very impressive, and I can't wait to read your book. Is there anything else in, specifically in your book that that you'd like to share with us? Um, yeah, I think the most important thing that I want readers to take away is to understand that, um, you know, in politics, like in life, 90% of kind of your outcomes is contingent on who shows up. And so, you know, at the end of the day, um, as much as we might uh, begrudge them some of the advantages that the government has given them along the way, and we might not agree with what they're trying to do in terms of policies, um, the fact is that teachers mobilize uh, folks to get involved in politics. And really, there's no excuse for folks who feel differently that, that share a different vision about what they would like public education to look like from also getting involved. Now, they they might face some uphill challenges. They might not have, like I said, all the same benefits that the unions are afforded. Uh, but I think evidence out of Florida recently gives us reason um, to think that there could be more competition. And so um, I would encourage folks to look at what happened in, in um, 2022 in Florida, where Governor Ron DeSantis endorsed 30 candidates for the local school board. Now, this was unprecedented. Uh, It's very uncommon for governors uh, to get involved in local school board contests. And in DeSantis's case, it really was a gamble because uh, even in Florida, my research shows that the Florida Education Association tended to win, again, about seven out of 10 elections when it made an endorsement. And DeSantis had his own reelection to worry about in 2022. And still, he decided to spend time and energy and give donations to these 30 candidates. And what he did there was really remarkable. When the dust had settled in November of 2022, DeSantis had brought the teacher union's win rate from 70 percent down to 20 percent. And I think something like 25 off the top of my head, like 25 or 26 of his 30 endorsed candidates won. Now, it wasn't because of money, uh, although he did give them some money, but that's really not what what happened here. What happened was that you had a strong, conservative, recognizable political figure who lent his name and credibility to these candidates that most voters didn't really know. You know, most voters would show up. Remember, these are nonpartisan school board elections. And so they show up and they go, I don't really know much about any of the candidates. Of course, the teachers unions and their supporters, they know everything about the candidates. They know which candidate is endorsed by the union. Well, DeSantis helped even that playing field. And I think if you step back, what's so powerful about that example is it didn't take anything other than sort of one trusted, credible political figure for conservatives 
to coordinate what they were doing. And that could happen in lots of other states, right? Like a, a Greg Abbott could do that in Texas. Uh, you could imagine a Glenn Youngkin doing it in Virginia. So I would encourage uh, those listeners and folks who consider themselves active in politics from working with their their local political parties and trying to get uh, a statewide recognizable political figure in their state to start paying attention to these school board elections, because in many ways, they're, they're low hanging fruit that is up for grabs. Part of the reason the union's been so dominant over the years is that there, there just isn't anyone else showing up to compete with them. It's amazing that you brought that up because one of the, one of the questions I was wanting to ask you is what can policymakers and educators do to kind of balance the influence of teachers unions. So it sounds like you're saying local school board elections. Am I hearing you right on that? You're hearing me right. I think that's the biggest formal thing that formal channel that's available to them. I also think part of it is, you know, you need folks in school districts to be a bit of a gadfly. Um, sometimes the reason that, that people or groups get away with things year after year is because there's nobody calling them out. There's nobody looking under the hood. There's nobody trying to bring something to the attention of a local journalist. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that people ought to be annoying for annoying sake and file a whole bunch of freedom of information requests just to give a hassle to the nice people working inside the district. But I do think that, you know, uh, good democracy, hey, if it's good enough for the Washington Post, who loves to say that democracy dies in darkness, why isn't it good enough for our local school districts to have to furnish information on what the curriculum looks like to parents, what the collective bargaining agreement looks like? Why don't parents have a seat at the table during collective bargaining in states that have unions? I mean, this is just sort of good common sense government transparency. And again, unfortunately, uh, part of the reason that you've had darkness for so many years is that nobody's been willing to step up and spend the time uh, getting involved in these things. Because let's be honest, the, you know, you don't win a whole lot of fans uh, by being that gadfly. But every district needs a few of them. And I think pa many parents became those gadflies during COVID. I think your next book should be titled The Gadflies. <laughs> That's <And> not bad. <laughs> when it becomes a number one seller, you don't even have to give me credit for that. But as you were, right. you were talking about that, I thought that would be a book that I would read. <clears throat> Well, that's a, that gives me a chance to transition to tell you what I think my next book will be titled. We'll see. Yeah. It's, it's t the next project is tentatively titled uh, Unmasked, How COVID-19 Revealed Painful Truths About Our Schools. Unmasked. I can't. When does that come out? It's probably going to be at least another year. You know, these things take time, but I'm working as hard as I can here out here at Hoover. <laughs> well, I would I would love for you to come back on the podcast when your new book comes out or before that, if you want to come on here and promote it and tell us a little about it, that'd be great. Uh, great. I mentioned a minute ago, you know, I usually end the episode with a few key takeaways and I usually ask my guests, what's the one thing you want the listener to remember if they don't remember anything else about this episode? And so I'm going to, I'm circling back around to that. What is the one thing you mentioned something a minute ago that might've been specifically about your book, uh, but just about this topic in general, or it could be something from your book. What's the one thing you want them to remember? Let me uh, be a little contrarian here. I, um, 
I tend to, now this is just my, my personal perspective. It's not really my scholarly view. Um, okay. so I'm just speaking sort of personally here. I tend to find myself, um, uh, in, in the company of agreeing with a lot of the critiques that you hear from, um, say, uh, groups like Moms for Liberty, some of the nice people that we met at the conference, um, when they point to a lot of the problematic things going on in schools these days in regard to marginalizing parents, uh, the potential and the growth for inappropriate curriculum, sort of so-called, why don't we just uh, bundle it up as call it culture, cultural issues that are very dominant right now. Um, however, this is, you know, it was the old saying, everything you say after, but is, is all that matters. <laughs> How, however, I do think that right now, people who consider themselves, I mean, your, your podcast is the conservative educator. I think that conservatives are in jeopardy of making us a, a little bit of a mistake, which is that I don't think, uh, they should abandon attention on these issues. I mean, for example, there's great polling data, not that the media would let you know about it, but there's great polling data from the University of Southern California, hardly a bastion of conservatism. <laughs> That shows that seven or eight out of 10 parents, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, it doesn't matter. They don't want kids in elementary and middle schools reading about, talking about, or anything to do with sex. I mean, shocker, right? This is like common sense. We wouldn't call it conservative 10, 15 years ago. Um, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, trans, they just don't want, they want their kids doing math exactly. and reading. Okay. Right. And so, and so I do agree with the folks in organizations like Moms for Literacy and these other groups, that these are politically winning issues, if you will. Um, and, and, and they also happen to be where most Americans are. However, what I worry about, what keeps me up at night, is that well, the political right and the political left start to duke it out over these culture, cultural issues, that we forget that just as important as having it, as it is to have Moms for Liberty it's equally important to make sure that we have moms for literacy. And what I mean by that is we can't lose sight of the fact that we've had massive learning loss during COVID. Student achievement gaps continue to be a problem. And too many kids are enumerate and illiterate. And at the end of the day, if we spend all of our time as adults fighting about the political issues that bother us most, and we stop giving attention to the academic achievement outcomes that were really kind of what the political agenda was when it came to education sort of during the early 2000s, then I think we're going to continue to see that those declines. And I'm not just making that up. My good friend, uh, political scientist at Ohio State University, Vlad Kogan, has an excellent paper that shows that when school districts have big fights about cultural issues, whether it's on the right or the left, it doesn't really matter. Um, it distracts from and results in declines in student achievement in subsequent years in those districts because all of the oxygen in the room gets sucked up on those issues rather than sort of reading, writing, and doing arithmetic. Right. Well, that makes sense, but I, I'd never heard that. As we wrap things up, can you share with our listeners uh, where they can find out more about your projects, your books, the Hoover Institution? how they can connect yeah. with you on social media. Basically, this is your time to plug or promote anything you want to that you're doing. All right. Well, I am on Twitter or X, I guess, as it's now called, at Michael T. Hartney. 
Um, my, uh, my website is on the Hoover website. It's hoover.org, uh, backslash profiles, Michael T. Hartney, uh, and all of my popular writings in places like national review and city journal and the Washington post and other places can be found there, um, along with links to some of my scholarly work. Uh, and of course the book is also on Amazon. Uh, and I know that you'll link uh, that for readers as well, which I very much appreciate. Oh, no problem. I'll provide all those links that you just mentioned. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. It was great to meet you at the Teacher Freedom Summit, and it's been a pleasure having you on the conservative classroom. And I know our listeners will appreciate your insights on the teachers' unions, and I know they'll enjoy your book. I have a link in the show notes, so each listener will be able to grab a copy of their own. So thank you so much. Thank you, Joey. That's it for today's episode of The Conservative Classroom. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something. If you liked what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Most importantly, share this podcast with a like-minded educator, parent, or patriot. You can also connect with us on social media and share your thoughts on today's topic. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to teach the truth and preserve our values, consider showing support for the conservative classroom and your fellow conservative teachers by showing off some conservative swag. Visit our merch store by clicking the link in the show notes. In addition to clothing and coffee mugs with our logo, name, and slogan, we also have items with our colors and schoolhouse logo only. We know it's hard to be openly conservative in some school districts, but your silent show of support may help you find other conservatives in your community. In other words, you might not be comfortable wearing a shirt that says the conservative classroom on it, but if you wear one that has a low-key logo on it, you won't be pushing your politics on your liberal friends or your students. But you might just discover another closet conservative. Even if you don't, you'll know that you are quietly supporting the values best for your kids, your school, and your community. Find more ways to support the podcast at theconservativeclassroom.com. That's theconservativeclassroom.com. Until next time, this is Mr. Webb reminding you that you are not alone. See you next time on The Conservative Classroom, teaching the truth, preserving our values.